Good morning. Uh, open your Bible with me, if you would, and we're going to read Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. And let me just read that here. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set them on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. As you see, I'm not Pastor Walker. Uh, He has got, uh, I guess, a a crud that he's trying to get over, and hopefully uh, he'll get over that very quickly. Uh, Let me just open up a word of prayer, and then we'll get started on the message. Father, we thank you for this time we can spend in your word. And as we look at the message from this parable that you have left with us, one that uh, I'm sure everyone has heard before, uh, we just ask you just to give us a special message through this as we go through these verses and understand what it is you would have us to do. And we just uh, ask for your blessings on this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the parable of the Good Samaritan is you know, all of six verses long from verse 30 to 35 in Luke 10. So you might ask, well, why did we read uh, 12 or 13 different verses then? Well, what leads up to the parable is important for us to understand as well as the uh, parable itself. There are, if you count them, about 39 parables in the Gospels. And Jesus uses these parables to make a point in each case. And there's a number of points which we want to, which Jesus makes in this uh, parable to the Good Samaritan, which we want to highlight. And as you see, the lawyer here comes to Jesus and asks a question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And it's a question that is asked of him, has been asked of him a number of times as recorded in the Gospels. And this is just one example of that. And Jesus just doesn't go and just answer that question. He, as he often does, is answers a question with another question. And then that gets us into uh, the parable itself. You might ask, well, what is a parable? Um, okay, let me just 
get these slides up here. Yeah. Okay, so here's, here's the outline of what we're going to cover. And uh, as you'll see, um, you know, there are two words that stand out, which I'm going to emphasize in this message. One is mine, and the other is yours. What do we do with that in this parable uh, of the Good Samaritan? So we're going to look at uh, how Jesus uses parables and then answer that question, who is my neighbor? Because we need to be aware of that too. And then in the case of the Good Samaritan who passes by this, this uh, injured uh, person on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, we're going to look at the robbers themselves, what their attitude is. We're going to look at the what I'll call the religious people, the uh, uh, Levite and the priest, and then the Good Samaritan, who we'll see is, in this case, the righteous person. And then how should we respond to that? So first of all, let's look at uh, the uh, why and how Jesus uses miracles. And we see that uh, this is a common form of teaching used in Jesus' day, and uh, Jesus uses it very effectively. Sometimes we can consider it just analogies. And if you come to Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16, uh, where Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That doesn't mean that we are you know, literally salt or literally light. It means we should act like salt to preserve you know, salt is used to preserve things, to preserve food, and we should be a light on the hill to others, to unbelievers. That's what we're called to do. Um, in First Peter 2.12, we see, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And uh, if you go back to Matthew... And we're not going to read all these verses, but Matthew 13, uh, 10 to 17, Jesus explains, you know, the purpose of using parables to the disciples. Uh, in verse 10, he says, the, 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 uh, the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answers them and, and says this in verse 11. He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you, you the, you, the disciples, you, the believer, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Truth made known to the disciples. But truth is obscured from unbelievers. Uh, it can be an act of judgment or an act of mercy as well. But it's clearly, it's not understood by unbelievers what the message is in the parables typically. They just don't understand God's word, and they can't relate it to what they should do as unbelievers. So, before this, in verses 3 to 9, the parable of the sower is given. And I think you know that well, where the seed falls among the, the hard rock and the good soil in different places. And then he explains, Jesus explains why he uses parables. And then, starting in verse 18... He explains the use of that parable. And that seed falling among the rocks, you know, unbelievers, seed falling on good soil among believers that come to belief. And so he explains how we use parables, and that explanation can be used 
to understand the other parables in the New Testament as well. So then let's uh, go further in uh, what this lawyer has to say. His first question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this is a, a lawyer asking that. So this lawyer certainly knows the law of the Old Testament. He knows what the law says. Uh, Jesus answers his question with another question. What is written in the law? And Jesus knew, of course, that this lawyer could respond quite accurately to what's in the law. And uh, the lawyer knew the law and answered with, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Uh, And this, um, you know, you can say, well, Jesus quotes the New Testament as well here. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. And in Leviticus 19.18, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And if you know the Ten Commandments, this summarizes really the Ten Commandments that are given to Moses in, uh, and he writes down in Exodus. And if you look at those Ten Commandments, the first four have to do with the Lord, your relationship to the Lord, your relationship to God. And the last six have to do with your relationship with man, with your neighbor. And so he breaks it up into two, and this is a very nice summary, and that is quoted in a number of the uh, the um, Gospels. So Jesus told the lawyer, who obviously was skilled in the Mosaic Law, that he had answered that correctly. And to do the, and he says, "Do this, and you will live." We are held as believers; we are held responsible for what we know. We are not condemned for what we do not understand. We are condemned for what we do understand and do not do. There's a difference there. Jesus does not say that we can get to heaven by being perfect. You know, we know from the scriptures that we can't be perfect. We can't earn salvation. We can't do it by good works because we we are not perfect. And the lawyer should have seen that as well. He knew he wasn't perfect. And yet... He goes further, as we'll see. So we need to understand the need for a Savior before we can be saved. And as we covered in the Fundamentals of the Faith program, you know, our salvation is a work of God, but yet we are charged to respond to that gospel message and that calling. Jesus himself summarized the law when, he, when asked by a Pharisee lawyer, Matthew 22, uh, 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? So this isn't the first time that he was asked about the law. And uh, Jesus answers him again, uh, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in, in Mark, it's repeated again. So clearly, this is the recognized summary of the Ten Commandments. And these are the two commandments uh, that, on which hang the law and the prophets. Um, and as I said, this is not the first time somebody has asked him this question, how do I inherit eternal life? Uh, there's a young ruler that's recorded in Mark, in Matthew, and in Luke. Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And uh, that's asked in the three different Gospels. 
And then, so the lawyer should have known what he needed to do. He needed to repent of his sin and come to belief. But yet, he goes a step further. In verse 29, uh, the lawyer asked a second question, and who is my neighbor? You know, who should I pay attention to? Who is my neighbor? Good question. You know, we'll be asked the same question too. How do we answer that? And we'll get to that. Uh, The lawyer was comfortable with loving God. The lawyer was not comfortable with his past actions in loving his neighbor. He knew he was sinful, but he didn't repent of his sin. He, as it goes on, tries to justify what he did. And uh, that doesn't work. The, the lawyer was a, had an attitude of self-righteousness. He tried to justify himself by speaking, uh, seeking a narrow definition of a neighbor. In other words, if I can make that definition of a neighbor uh, small enough, then my obligations are smaller as well. So uh, that didn't work very well for him. The purpose of this parable is to answer a question and deal with an attitude. Not just answer the question he had, but also deal with the attitude that the lawyer had. Jesus answered the lawyer with this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan that we'll come to, to illustrate who our neighbor is. And that we're going to spend a, a significant amount of time on that. How would you answer the question, who's my neighbor? Is that the guy next door? The guy on the, the right side of me, the guy on the left side of me, the guy across the street? No, it's whoever God puts in your path. Whether he, you live next to him or God puts him in your path in the grocery store or gas station or on an airplane, you know, wherever. That is your neighbor. Uh, so we'll come back to answering that question for the Good Samaritan as well, to see the people that go past this fellow that was robbed on the road from Jerusalem to um, Jericho. So the parable also illustrates, or can illustrate for us, three different attitudes to the use of what we have. You know, some people will say, well, I don't have any money. Uh, I can't give that to my neighbor. So, okay, so you don't have any treasure. Do you have a talent that others don't have that you could give and share with others? Do you have time that you can spend with your neighbor? You know, that's what Jesus is asking. It's not, you know, your money. It's there's other, the treasure, the time, and the talent that he's asking. So the purpose of this uh, parable we can get from this, um, illustrate, first of all, who is our neighbor, and second, to deal with an attitude of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness does not get us anywhere. You have to understand that the Samaritans were the most despised and hated by the Jews, people in the land of Israel. And uh, therefore, you know, calling this the Good Samaritan is quite a remarkable uh, title in itself. Uh, The parable that Jesus tells would seem impossible to the Jews. I mean, as you see, the Samaritan helps this guy by the side of the road. That's unexpected. Jews are not expected to do that because Samaritans are beneath them. If you look at the social structure of the day, you know, we'll come to the priest. He's at the center. Next is the Levite. You know, the Levites, of course, are, are not descendants of Aaron, uh, the priest, but they, they are righteous Jews. And then we have the ordinary Jew, you know, out in the circle. And then we have, uh, uh, you know, where's yet the tax collectors, you know, everybody hates tax collectors. And uh, so they're 
circle number four, and then come the Samaritans. They're worse yet. And then the worst of all is Gentiles. So you have those six-layer structure. So the question that the lawyer is asking, you know, who is my neighbor in those circles? Do I just, you know, if, if um, I'm at the, the bottom, a priest or a Levite, do I just minister to the Jews or to fellow Levites or to fellow priests? Or do I have to go outside that circle to the other layers? And uh, the answer, of course, is you have to go to the other circles. Even in a synagogue, you'll note that the Jews practiced having the priest read first, then the Levite, and then the ordinary Jew. So they followed that structure very religiously. The lawyer's question becomes, how far out in the circle do I have to go? Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Parables are representative of real life. Notice when Jesus talks about these the uh, um, players in the parable, he doesn't give names. He just refers to man in general. He refers to a priest in general. Uh, the key players, as you'll see in this uh, parable, are the robbers, first of all, the victim of the robbery, the priest and the Levite, who are the religious people, and then the Samaritan and the innkeeper, who are the righteous people in this case, because they do the right thing. So we see three different attitudes in the key players in the parable. Three attitudes. And we're going to walk through them one at a time here. Okay. High tech is great when it works. There we go. Okay, so the first verse of the parable is... uh, 30. Okay, and here we have recorded the robber, you know, doing damage to the victim and leaving him so uh, incapacitated by the road that he can't even get up. He was knocked unconscious, he was stripped, and uh, he's in bad shape. So you have to understand the uh, environment where this happens. The robber and the victim would be going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And if you know the geography of Israel there, Jericho is on a hill, and Jericho is actually under uh, sea level and about 3,300 feet lower than Jericho. So they're going downhill. The priest and the Levite are going downhill. The robber and and the the victim, we're not told which direction they're going. Um, and, and the Samaritan, we're not told what direction he's going as well. But you have to realize that's a very treacherous road. Normally, Samaritans would not get on that road because that's in Jewish territory. And Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. I mean, Samaritans lived closer to the Sea of Gal- Galilee and, and the uh, Jordan River. And uh, if you go down to Jericho uh, today, Jericho is not in Israel. It's in the West Bank. And uh, it's a place where you can't go to. You know, I've, I've been there a few times, but uh, I, you can't get into Jericho itself. And then you go t- to the Dead Sea, and that's where the Qumran um, caves are, the Dead Sea Scroll Caves, just by the Dead Sea. So that's the area we're going. And uh, Samaritans normally would not travel down that road. And it's, a da- it's known to be a dangerous road in the first place, so the robbery happening uh, should not be a surprise to a lot of people. The road, in fact, is known as the way of blood. And so the story would be very believable 
to Jesus' listeners because they know the environment. They know the danger of that place. Uh, This victim is robbed, wounded, and left for dead. He needs help. And so the robbers take what is not rightfully theirs and take it to themselves. In other words, they think might makes right. If I'm stronger than you are, I have a... um, the ability to take from you, because might is right. Um, and you see this today, you know, bank robberies, carjackings, um, you know, hijackings, any of these crimes. They happen because the person that commits the crime is stronger than the victim. And so it happens. And, uh, and that's the attitude they have. Their attitude is, what is yours is mine. If I'm stronger than you, I can take it. What's yours is mine. That's their attitude. And that's why we, we title this, What's Yours is Mine. Uh, brutality is characteristic of the wicked, as shown in Second Timothy here, verse, uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 2 and 3. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, etc., etc. And in Proverbs we read, The wicked are violent, do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it. Uh, pass on. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Violence is and becomes part of their nature. It's just what they do. And uh, so stay away from that. So to the robber here, money is more important than his fellow man. Uh, he's after the money. You know, you've seen it in today's uh, culture environment. You know, why do people rob banks? That's where the money is. You know, why do uh, lawyers uh, sue rich companies? Because they have the money. You know, so they're after the money. Uh, in Timothy, First Timothy 6, we read, Now, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and is certain we can gain nothing out. We can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice that verse doesn't say, um, money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's not evil to be rich. It's just your attitude to the riches that gets us in trouble. Physical riches cannot save, but many put their own well-being first. So the more money you have, um, the better off I, I am, and uh, you know, I can defend myself and, and live quite well. But that's not to be our attitude. Luke 12, where Jesus spoke. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a rich man yieldeth plentiful, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In other words, Jesus, again, warning us, don't um, build your riches here on earth because you can't take them with you anyway. Have you ever been to a funeral? Where they're t- they, and and they have a U-Haul they're pulling behind the hearse. Can't take it with you. Doesn't work. So, but again, the, what the robbers say: take what is yours and make it mine. 
Their attitude is, as the title says, what is yours is mine. Well, then let's look at what the priest has to say. And their attitude, as we'll see, what is mine is mine. Uh, You know, I have it. Some would even say, well, God gave it to me, so I should just keep it. And uh, that's the attitude here of these two travelers. The Jewish culture was such that it treated anyone who touched a dead man as unclean. Now, the the priest and the Levite, you'll see in these two verses, uh, 31-32, they're traveling the road. They they see this man by the side of the road, and they they actually go to the other side of the road and go past him. They don't stop to minister to him. And why would that be? You know, presumably, if they're going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, they were worshiping in some synagogue in Jerusalem. And here they come, you know, upon this guy that uh, looks half dead and decide just to go past him, not to minister to him at all. And is that a righteous attitude? Well, they have to justify that. Uh, And they could use this as an excuse. That guy is unclean. And I don't have to minister to him. You know, God told me to minister to the righteous. And they even quote some verses. Um, Psalm 139, verse 21-22, to justify their attitude. He says, do I not hate them? He's referring to the unrighteous. Do, not, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate me? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. So they would consider them, well, they're unrighteous people. They're my enemies. And I have a right to just pass by them. I don't have an obligation to minister to them. Yes, God put them there. uh, But, you know, we don't have to minister to them is what they're saying. So they figured they've already done their worship service and they're just on their way home. And they don't have to bother with this victim by the side of the road. The wicked, uh, to the scribes and the Pharisees, one's neighbors, were the wicked, uh, or, or sorry, were the righteous ones only. All they had to do is minister to the righteous, not to the unrighteous. That was their attitude. The wicked, which would include sinners in their eyes, would include tax collectors, of course, and would even include uh, Gentiles and Samaritans, because they were far down on the social scale. We didn't have to minister to them. Uh, They're they're not in our uh, social category. So they justify passing them by because of this. They're not obligated to uh, pay attention to the unrighteous. Um, We are told to hate the sin, but love the sinner. When we encounter sin in the world, we see people sinning, and you know, just not our sin, but others as well. Uh, we look at, at those people, homosexuals, for example, and say, they're sinning. Okay, what they're doing is sin. Uh, but we are told, yes, we hate, we are to hate the sin, but we are to love the sinner. They know nothing about the person by the side of the road, um, they don't know if he's a Samaritan that has been downed by these robbers. They, they don't know nothing about him. And yet they're bypassing them because they justify themselves by saying, well, he's probably a sinner and there's a reason for why he's suffering. 
So God, godly hatred is marked by broken-hearted grieving over the condition of the sinner. If they were concerned about this victim, they would have tended to him. But obviously they weren't concerned at all. And in Luke 6, earlier chapter, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. You know, just because he's a sinner doesn't mean you shouldn't minister to him. You know, we're all sinners. Would we want people not to minister to us because we are sinners? No. Matthew 5. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So are the priest and the Levite, are they exemplifying this kind of an attitude to the victim? No, they're not. They are lovers of themselves. They're too busy in their own duties to get involved. I mean, how many times have we said, uh, well, if I had the time, I, I could minister to this person. But I don't have the time. It's not important enough to me. Or, yes, I have a talent that God has given me that I could use to minister to this person. And, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't have the strong enough talent for that. Or the resolution of this guy's problem is money. And I don't have that much money, so God hasn't given me that much money, so why should I help him? You know, I'm going to keep it so I can spend it on my family or whatever else I spend it on. So they're too busy in their own thing to get involved. They weren't responsible for man's unfortunate circumstances, and these were unfortunate circumstances. You know, imagine if a uh, one of these... Jewish priest or, or the Levite were robbed on that road. Uh, would they expect the other guy that is now a victim to help them? I think so. They would hope that they would that that victim, if he was healthy, would be able to help them if they were unfortunate enough in these circumstances. So they felt no obligation or responsibility to the man's welfare. They neglected an opportunity to do good. Not doing good, you know about, is a sin. James says that in James 4.17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. How can you have faith without doing good? James says further in, in James 2. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? That's also faith by itself. If it does not have works, is dead. Faith without good works is dead. And that's not that we should do good works to be saved, but because we are saved, we should be thankful for what we have and do good works so we may be a witness to others. Um, if you ignore the needy, how can God's love be in you? As John says in 1 John three sixteen to 18, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? 
My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Do, Paul says further in Galatians 6.10, do good to all men as the opportunity arises. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. So when we are presented an opportunity, we should do something about that. We shouldn't just walk by it. You know, we have an obligation to do something to help that less fortunate person, whether it be with our money, with our talent, or with our time. There's more than one way to uh, serve there. So their attitude showed their hypocrisy. They had been just been to worship God, love God, but they did in Jerusalem, but they did not help the wounded man. They did not love their neighbor. Refusal to help one's neighbor cast doubt on one's love for God, as we've seen in these verses that we just read. The priest and the Levite knew the law. There's no excuse for them. They knew the law. They were caught up in a dead religion. They go to church, but it doesn't impact the way they live. And that's, you know, I've shared this before. That's why many people give as an excuse not coming to faith. They see, you know, all of us hypocrites in the church. They see us in the church, and then we go outside the rest of the week. What do we do? You know, they're they're watching. They're watching us. And if we do something that is counter to what God's word says, they'll say, why would I want to be another one of those hypocrites? You know, I'm not going to go to church. So they use that as an excuse. And we have to be mindful uh, of that. Um, so the, the priest and Levite knew the law. They were caught up in, in a dead religion. They go to church, but it doesn't impact how they live. They were religious leaders. So they should be setting an example. They should have set an example for their fellow uh, Jewish people. They were responsible for the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. They represent the religious, both the priest and the Levite at different levels. They had elevated hostility to the wicked to the status of a virtue. They made it look like a virtue. The fact that they didn't minister to their neighbor who was unrighteous, they used that as an excuse, said, well, in Psalm 139, we read that we shouldn't deal with the unrighteous, but that, not for that purpose, but to help, we are. So they're making the statement, I'm keeping what I have for myself. And that is why we use this title, you know, what is mine is mine. Whatever God gave me, that's mine. I'm not going to you know, spread the wealth, so to speak. That's mine. He gave it to me. I rightfully own it. I don't have to do anything with it. Every man for himself, a common attitude of the religious. They were lovers of themselves, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.2. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. So that's their attitude. And then we come to the Samaritan. What does he do? And why would he do this? He's coming by here. He's a Samaritan. Uh, We're not told what the victim is. Is he a Jewish? Is he a Gentile? Is he a Samaritan? We're not told that. And uh, most likely, it's a Jewish person because that is Jewish territory. And it would be a Jew walking down the road. And uh, the robber, we're not told what he is, what, uh, 
whether Gentile or, or Samaritan, but presumably they're all Jews. And uh, the Jew here, um, it, well, the, the Samaritan could be helping a Jew. We don't know. But he doesn't ask the question, are you, are you a Samaritan and I'll help you? And if you're not, I'm not going to help you. He doesn't ask that question. He doesn't ask what nationality he is. He just goes out to help him. So, you know, you might ask, what's the Samaritan doing on this road in the first place? He knows it's a treacherous road. Why would he be on that? Well, it's a road that goes from Samaria to um, Jerusalem. So there's no reason why he wouldn't, although he may not go all the way to Jerusalem, but yet he's on the road. So the, the Samaritan was, in fact, risking his own life uh, just by traveling. Uh, not just because of the uh, treachery of the thieves that are on that road, uh, but also because of the hostility of other travels, travelers on that road, because it's known to be a dangerous road. And so, you know, the, the very fact he's on there is rather uh, amazing. The Samaritans were an inferior mixed race in the Jewish mind, and therefore, you know, they wouldn't expect the Samaritan to come by and help this victim. I mean, why would he spend his time on the Jews who hated him, the Samaritan, and yet he did. The Samaritan showed compassion. He didn't pass on the other side of the road, which the uh, priest and the Levite did. He moved to the injured traveler. Even if he was walking on the other side, when he saw the injured traveler, he walked to him. And sometimes we need to walk to where the need is as well. You know, we shouldn't always avoid the places where you might find people in need. We should do that as a ministry as well. We should go to that place and move to that sinner, as we are sinners, and build a relationship with that person and see where we can help. And, you know, as we come up to the Christmas season, uh, we might be thinking about that. You know, there's a lot of people in need today, a lot of hurts a lot of uh, wants, a lot of uh, um, real needs, physical needs, spiritual needs, and we should be available to minister uh, to them as God shows us that need. And presumably for this traveler, the Samaritan, it wasn't convenient for him to stop and minister to him. Uh, I mean, he's on a, a trip, on a business trip or whatever. He's got things to do. He doesn't have time to stop, and yet he does. He takes time out to do that. The injured traveler would probably not have done the same for him. In other words, if this injured guy is a, a Jewish uh, person, um, if, he, if the shoe was on the other foot and he was injured, or, or sorry, he came by the injured Samaritan, would he stop to help him? Probably not, because he's Samaritan. He's below him in the social class. And yet here's the Samaritan who does stop to help the Jew, even though he knows that the Jews hate him. So, you know, we fail a lot of time uh, not to move towards someone because of fear of rejection, too. You know, maybe they're not the right person to help. Maybe they have a, uh, a need that we can't satisfy. We don't know. And we use that excuse not to move to that person to help them um, because we may be rejected anyway. 
But in this case, the Samaritan provided care. He stopped and took care of the traveler's wounds. He put the injured traveler on his own donkey and walked himself. Uh, You know, he obviously was on his donkey. The Samaritan was riding down the road. He got off the donkey and put the injured man on the donkey. And so it really inconvenienced him. Uh, And he took him to an inn. So presumably there's a few inns on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. He took him to an inn and put him up there. And uh, he took time to help. He took time and it cost him money because he paid the innkeeper two denarii, which is about uh, two days wages, which could last the victim probably, they say, at least a month or so, a stay in the inn to recuperate if he had to. And so the time is not stipulated here. Um, but he took the time to take him to the inn. And he, the record says he stayed overnight with him. He just didn't drop him off and then disappear. But he stayed overnight and left the next morning. So he spent significant time uh, with this injured man. Um, he took time to help. And he gave the innkeeper sufficient funds so that the innkeeper could take care of him when he left uh, the next morning. And sometimes, uh, that's why I use these three words, treasure, talent, and time. Sometimes we think, well, if, if uh, this person or this need can be met just with a little bit of money, just give him a little bit of money and uh, it'll be done, taken care of. But it may not be what that person in need has a need for. He may need some time spent with him. Or he may need somebody's talent applied to him. It's not always money that will fix it. You know, we're sometimes faced with, uh, um, you know, people in plazas or something with a, their hands out and they want money. Is that the right thing to do? You know, that's where discernment comes in. Sometimes, yes, it is the right thing to do. Sometimes, uh, you know, you ask, what, what do you need the money for? Well, I need to eat. I'm hungry. Okay, let me take you to McDonald's or wherever and uh, buy some food for you. And that way you know that he will use that money wisely and not spend it on some other um, thing like, like drugs or something like that. Uh, because that's what a lot of them do, as we know. So we need to have discernment uh, as well. And when he gave the money to the innkeeper, he didn't put a limit on how much the innkeeper should spend to take care of that man. He just gave him enough. And he says at the end, you know, when I come back, and obviously his plans to come back that route again, if there are more things that, that cost more, I'll pay it. He didn't say I'll put it on my credit card, but he'll say I'll, I'll pay it you know, if there's more needed. So he he made sure that this wounded man was taken care of. He was willing to sacrifice and be vulnerable, even in enemy territory. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to sacrifice our comfort to help this man? And uh, sometimes it's just the right thing to do. Uh, I've shared this with a number of you before. You know, during the, the war, Second World War, uh, I, I was born in Holland. During, the, during that war in an occupied country, and uh, my parents uh, 
the last few years of the war, put up a Jew, Jewish lady in the attic. And uh, we'd often ask them, well, why did you do that? Look at the danger to us, the kids. And uh, they're simple. And, and we lived right next to the North Sea, just behind the dike. And, and so, the, you know, the Germans were obviously close by. And uh, my parents just simply said it was the right thing to do. You know, we didn't think about the danger to us or to others. You know, it was just the right thing to do. And so that was quite a story in itself. She did survive the war, and uh, but she lost most of her relatives during the war. Anybody that says the Holocaust didn't happen, just ask me. It did happen. We have lots of evidence for that. Um, so, as I said, there's no assurance that the victim would help the Samaritan if the shoe was on the other foot. And we're commanded here in Matthew 7.12 to do unto others what you would have done to you. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So in this case, the Samaritan is the one that represents the righteous people. You'd expect the Levite and the priest to be righteous and do the right thing. No. The Samaritan, who you would least expect to do the right thing, he did the right thing. And so we are being mindful of that. Um, you know, sometimes we say, well, um, yeah, I could give him a little bit of money, but my neighbor here, he's got a lot more. Why don't I just let him give it? No, that's not the right answer. If God puts it on your heart to help that person, you need to help that person, whether it be your treasure, your talent, or your time. Uh, and he didn't, the Samaritan didn't check out the character of the man to see if he was deserving of help. He didn't ask, uh, you know, do you really need my help or are you be okay? No, he just went there and helped him. We are commanded, in, in Romans 12 here, we are commanded to help even our worst enemy. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And, uh, you know, Paul is quoting here from Proverbs 25, uh, verse 21, 22. If your enemy is hungry, you know, you feed him and the Lord will reward you. So here is the good Samaritan. This is the crux of the parable of the good Samaritan. Uh, he saw the need. Uh, he did what he had to do. He didn't ask questions about whether he should do it or how much he should do. He just did it. And we are to be mindful of that in our lives, too. If God puts a, uh, somebody in our path, you know, I, I've often had, uh, you know, I've, I've flown all over the world many times, and I always, two things I pray for. One is safe travel, safety in the travel. Second is if there's somebody that I need to speak to, Put him beside me, or put me beside him. Sometimes I'm surprised at who he puts beside me. Why did you do that? <laughs> you know, Gerda can tell one story where we were coming from Toronto to, uh, um, yeah, to, back to Seattle. Our, our brothers, sisters, parents lived there. And uh, we came back, and it turns out we got a different flight than uh, uh, we should have. 
uh, I think it was an earlier flight. And so we had to squeeze in, you know, um, in, a, in a plane that was almost full. And the, the other third person was on the window. Gerda was in the middle. And I was on the side because I, I had a book I wanted to read on the way home. And in the rush, Gerda forgot to take her reading material from above. And so I had some creation, just so happened to have some creation material in my bag. I said, well, why don't you read this? So the guy beside Gerda noticed what she was reading, and he had all kinds of questions. Turns out he was a Mormon, and he was a scientist. And so when I got up to go to the bathroom on the way back, she said, I think we should switch seats. (laughs) So I sat in the middle, and the rest of the way home, I corresponded with him, witnessed to him. And uh, I don't know the impact of that, but that was what I was called to do. So I didn't get to read my book on the way home. So, but I found time to read it later. But anyway, we sometimes we're put in uncomfortable positions, and sometimes we're put places where you just can't speak to your neighbor. They just don't want to hear it in the first place. But that's okay as well. Okay, so we have this example of, uh, you know, the third example Third attitude, what is mine is yours. And that is the attitude that the uh, uh, Good Samaritan had. So how do we respond to all that? What is our attitude like? Um, are we like the robbers? You know, take advantage of people. And uh, because we're stronger than they are, we're smarter than they are, we can take from them whatever we can, uh, you know, wheedle out of them or whatever. Or do we have a different attitude, and that is the religious attitude of the priest and the Levite? In other words, uh, the robber has that attitude, what is yours is mine, I can take it. The religious have the attitude, uh, what is mine is mine, I'm not going to share it, I'm not going to give it away. And then the good Samaritan, who is the righteous person in this place, and the innkeeper, should add him, uh, is the good is the uh, Good Samaritan with the attitude, what is mine is yours. You know, Israel failed to keep the law, especially the part to love their neighbor. The lawyer answered Jesus' question with, he who showed mercy on him, he did not refer to him as a Samaritan. He didn't call him a Samaritan. He didn't say to the, the, the Jews, you know, just because he's a Samaritan, you should have met his need. No, he didn't mention that. The lawyer asked Jesus, who and how much do I have to love? In other words, he's thinking, what's the least I can do? What's the least I can do? Rather than, I'll just do it without asking. How we love people shows our relationship with God. Love does not ask, how far should I go? How much should I give? Love asks, what can I do? Love is a 100% commitment in marriage. And, uh, you know, it's not 50-50. It's 100% both ways. The points of this parable, even our enemies are our neighbors. Ethnic and social standing are no guarantee of right standing before God. The Samaritan's actions are an example of what it means to love. And, uh, you know, we've seen the three different attitudes in this parable. 
of the robbers, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. The priest and Levite, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. And the good Samaritan, what's mine is yours, and I'm going to share it. And so as you look at these three options and the, the last Statement in the middle there, what is mine is yours. Those are the two words you need to remember, mine and yours. You know, what do you do with what, what's, what's mine, and who do I give it to? Yours. Those are the, that's the relationship. You know, our relationship with man, with men in need, women in need, should be what God's attitude is. We are to share that. So those are the, are the, the three attitudes, the attitude of the Samaritan uh, is what we should follow. So what, what do we learn from this parable? Mere membership or rituals in the church do not satisfy the commands to love God and love our neighbor. Remember, the Ten Commandments are broken in two pieces. Uh, the first four, that we should love God, and the last six, that we should love man. That's our relationship with man. Um, so when we love our neighbor, we show that we love God. Biblical love goes beyond the boundaries of geography, race, religion, socioeconomic status, and even convenience. We must love all men equally uh, and well. My neighbor, and this is you know, expanding the, the definition of neighbor, my neighbor is anyone with a legitimate need. And le- legitimate need is where the discernment comes in. And we have to be careful because there are people that will, uh, you know, panhandlers who will take advantage of us. And just, you know, everybody just puts money in his bucket. And, uh, and then when we're not looking, he drives off in his Cadillac. Yeah. We've got to be discerning. You know, we have to be careful who we, ha- who we help. But when it comes to determining who to help, then we need to step forward and do that. Um, The Bible goes beyond those limits that I, I mentioned, the boundaries. So my neighbor is anyone with a legitimate need for which God has given me the resources to meet that need. And sometimes it's not money. We think, yeah, just give him a little bit of money and his need satisfied. Off I go. No, sometimes it's treasure or time uh, or, or talent, time or talent that they need. Love means moving towards others even when not convenient. I mean, it certainly wasn't convenient for the Good Samaritans to stop in this long road from Jerusalem to Jericho or the other way, if he's going the other way. Um, he had to give up his time. He had to spend another night in the inn as well. So we need to move towards that person in need, even if it's not convenient. Now, there, there's some other practical implications of this peril. Should we help everyone that comes across our path? That's where discernment comes in. And yes, we do need to be careful on that point. Who is our neighbor? I would simply define that whoever God puts in our path, not the guy that lives next door, but whoever God puts in our path, wherever we are, whether we're traveling by car, uh, stopped at a gas station, we're traveling by airplane, or you know, wherever we are, even in a foreign country, sometimes God will put those needs in front of me, in front of us. And then how do we discern whether or how to help our neighbor? whoever that may be. And so Jesus says, you know, at the end, what should we do? Uh, We should go and do likewise. Go and do likewise of which example? Of the Good Samaritan. You know, we should do as the Good Samaritan did. Uh, 
Uh, we should look for opportunities in some cases. We should do it in love. Do we only do this to those who are nice to us? I mean, if I, I'm going to give to you because I know at some point you're going to feel guilty and give something back to me. No, that's not why we do it. But in Luke, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Proverbs 14.21, Have mercy on the poor. He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. And uh, there's another common verse that I'm sure many of you have heard of, and that's often used in missions conferences. You have been shown what will you do with this, this lesson. Micah 6, 8. It says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So that's a general statement, but we are to be available to help those in need wherever that need is identified by God to us. And I think the statement you know, to whom much has been given, from him much can be given as well. You know, goes back to the parable of the talents. The more you are given, the more you are enabled by God to give to those in need. And we should be mindful of that. So I hope this has been uh, useful to you to think about uh, during the Christmas season. As people come across your path, as God puts people on your path, you know, minister to those that you see a real need. There are many people uh, suffering, physical suffering, spiritual suffering, cultural uh, suffering, uh, jobless, you know, what have you, homeless. Many people in need, and God will put some of them in our paths, and we are to step forward and uh, help them. Let me close in a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll do the table. Father, we just come to you to thank you for this lesson that you have given in um, the book of Luke, and we thank you for that. May we apply what we have learned here and uh, in this Christmas season come up, and as you place people in our path who we discern have a real need, may you use what we have, either our treasures, our talent, or our time to minister to these people. And we just thank you for that opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.